Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Life Together Inscripted. Today I'm sitting down chatting with a longtime friend of mine named Andy Lara. Andy and I met in 2006, I believe, at, at an old church called Rock Harbor in Costa Mesa. And when we met, it was like that scene in Step Brothers when you're like, whoa, you're also into nunchucks. And we were into so many of the same things. He's like my uh, bizarro brother. He's short brown, into Jesus, into the same kind of music. He's a creative director, he's got tattoos, uh, but all of those things he beats me on, so I'm a little bit um, bothered with that. But um, check out his work. He's a creative director still. His website is andylikeswords.com, or if you kind of look at it differently, it looks like andylikeswords.com. So take your pick. Uh, that's always what I thought his website was. Um, yeah, creative director, and today we chat about parenting, what it's like to parent, especially a child with uh, Down syndrome and special needs, as well as we talk about how he had an ache and a yearning a number of years back to see the gospel transform people's lives. People like him who were creative, artsy type people who were on the fringe that church just didn't fit for them. They, they couldn't get into the building. And so he was like, man, how can we do this? So he started up this podcast and long story short, he ended up starting this church in Orange County that had a couple thousand people attending and remarkable story. So check that out. Hope you guys enjoyed as much as I enjoyed chatting with my buddy. Peace. Yo. How are you champion? I'm good. Can you hear me? Yeah, man. You're like all professional over there with your microphones and your, it's like you've done this before, huh? It's like, yeah, it's like I've done this before. I, when I, when I sat down, I was like, oh shit, there's not enough light in here. So like, I, found, I dug up like my wife's like super fast USB ring light and it's, I kind of just like jammed it between a window <laughs> just, just because like my, all my lights in my room are kind of on the side. And I sat down, I was like, oh, it's all like dark. I'm like, that's not cool. Yeah, come on, man. You, so, you're, on, you're, you're on blast with your uh, technical abilities and everything. I know, I know. I even, it's so nerdy, but even the other day I ordered a, um, it's like a PCI card, like a total like Chinese one that's supposed that you use to like stream gaming. Uh -huh. And I figured out how to hook up like my really nice Sony camera to it. So like my webcam is technically like $2,300. <laughs> make, make sure you don't get the Corona though. You ordered it from China. You know? Yeah, that's true. I know. Yeah. I, that's that Chinese was my card. Only, oh, my only risk was really was the idea of getting the virus. <laughs> hey, but um, crazy. just giving a heads up, we're recording right now. So part of this okay. interview, you know nothing about it, which is awesome. Um, I don't. Unedited, unscripted, 40 minutes of your time. And because it's unedited and unscripted, having a hard time with those words. Um, you can opt out at any point. That's rule number one. You can just be like, now nah, Matt, pass. Or rule number two, you can flip the interview on me at any point in time. You can ask me a question oh, about anything right. you'd like. So right. we're gonna go for it. Nice. Yeah, Yeah, I'm into that. Yeah, hey, what, <laughs> uh, right off the bat, tell me a little bit about your family lifestyle and how it relates to what's going on in Corona land right now. What are you learning? Uh, what's your family dynamic like at the moment? Oh man. Um, Okay, well, two things. Uh, first, uh, it's kind of a it's kind of an odd situation for us because our our life didn't change all that much uh, when it happened. Um, I switched to like a full time freelance gig about nine months ago, so I've been working out of the office at home uh, ever since. And we moved out of Orange County out to Redlands, California, which is about an hour kind of inland towards the desert near the mountains. And so we kind of got uh, 
bounced out of our big community that we had there. So here, like we have a few friends that are in this area, but not a, not a ton. So it's not like we were constantly out of home doing other things and all of that. So, and my wife was um, homeschooling. And so a couple of my boys were going uh, to like a private school on Tuesday mornings for a couple hours. So we had just gotten used to that rhythm. So once it became stay at home, um, it wasn't, it wasn't really that different for us. Like we're, we're home all the time as is. So it didn't, it didn't feel like that was a, a totally a huge shift. Yeah. So that, that hasn't been too bad. And then I've, I've actually been fortunate enough that my job is in creative telecommunications as a whole, if you will. So I, I've actually, I've been actually busier than not busy. So I, I signed like three contracts right before this thing hit. So it was just jumped. I was jumping into a ton of work as it was anyway. So um, we've been, I consider that to be a very fortunate, you know, situation. I have friends in other States that their entire income is dried up. They're photographers, people who work in events, my friends in bands, it was just tours are getting canceled. Events are getting canceled and they're just like literally my whole income dried up. And so it's just, it's crazy. So yeah. I, I consider myself very, very fortunate yeah, for that. Definitely. That being said, uh, four kids at home, um, all under the age of seven and one being only four months old. Um, it's mayhem in my home. <laughs> so yeah, inside the house, it's crazy. Uh, we've kind of leaned full post-apocalyptic mindset in a way like we're getting chickens in a month. Um, I've been making bread. I, <laughs> awesome. we've, we've like taken this whole section of the side of our house and made it like a garden. And we're, we're trying to, I don't know, eat out of that and just kind of flip the lifestyle. So it's, um, it, it's been good in that way. It's been neat to kind of uh, think about, be confronted with the reality of, of what is it, what does it look like to be potentially self-sustainable in this day and age, you know? I think the ideas of being off the grid like five years ago, 10 years ago just sounded like, you know, <laughs> yeah, you're that crazy person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, right. But right. now you're now you're like, um, I don't know. Maybe it's not so it's not so bad, actually, like, you know, making your own power and you know, really kind of if everything goes south, like you actually are are able to sustain. So yeah. Yeah. Um, tell me a little bit um about your children's dynamics. Um, I, I know a little bit, but you know, for anyone tuning sure. in, um, I, I'd love to know a little bit more about that. And if it's, you know, a, yeah, just, just tell me about your children's dynamics and, and what that's like. Yeah. Um, uh, so my oldest child is uh, six and a half. Um, she has down syndrome. Uh, we adopted her, uh, from birth from three days old. Uh, so we've been, um, just totally blessed by that and you know forever changed by that whole experience so uh she's our oldest um the remainder of our three children are bionatural and so uh my the second oldest is five my third oldest is uh two and a oh he'll be three next month actually and then my and then as i said before my my last child is four months older just about four months so um yeah so, so you're juggling multiple yeah. balls at the moment. Oh yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> um, they all have a lot of hair. Uh, so that's, that's great. <laughs> tons of energy, tons of sensitivity. Um, and they're, and the, the truth be told, they're all actually, they're all really smart. So that's, that's been kind of interesting to watch. I, I think, I happen to think they seem very intelligent and very in tune to, to the world and the, and, and some things. And so I, I think that's actually kind of, pretty fun to watch at a young age. 
Yeah. Um, Andy, I don't like want to necessarily make a story out of this, but I'd love to know maybe something that um, we wouldn't know or understand or experience as someone who has not only an adopted child, but an adopted child with Down syndrome. Like, I, brother, when you made that move, I was like, you just reminded me of like, true religion is those who care for the orphans and widows, you know, and and from the sideline, I was championing you and I was so thankful for you. Um, But in light of that, I'd love to know um, what's something we wouldn't know or experience or what has been your experience of that? Hmm. One thing I talked about when we adopted Sunflower, like people, a common stigma with adoption is you, you jump, you hear like, oh, what if I never, you know, love that child or connect with that child the way I would with like a normal, you know, a normal or, you know, Mm -hmm. psychonatural child. Mm -hmm. Um, Neuro, uh, sorry, uh, we'll use the term neurotypical. Um, The the odd thing about a child with uh, a disability is in a strange way, while you're entering into something that you know is going to be difficult, you actually know it's going to be difficult. So there's like that, predictability right mm, so it's mm. kind of it's easy to realize like oh nothing's going to be easy okay we get used to that <laughs> and then on top of that like you you kind of start to prepare your mind early on for a lifetime with this person like yeah you you know you're going to have you hope you know that you children never leave you you know mm. um you know off this earth kind of thing mm. but in a way like raising a person with a disability while you strive for their independence to have it one day, you're also like very early on mentally prepared for just like that, that lifelong journey being with them in your presence, mm-hmm. in your home, potentially for their entire life. Yeah. So you kind of, um, and in turn with that, depending on what kind of diagnosis that they have, if the diagnosis is kind of big, typical, like cerebral palsy or Down syndrome or those kinds of things, um, you there's there seems to be a common track record for what what to expect in their disability so you you kind of you you step into having life with them actually almost knowing a bit more of what to expect whereas with like any neurotypical kid you know you're praying every night that like at whatever age your kids don't get addicted to drugs like they don't end up like you know with with some other kind of issue like you know end up in trouble with the cops or the law or you know there's all of those things where independence grants the opportunity for, you know, for failure, for, you know, what happens mm. with idle hands, right? It's just, mm. there's, there's all that unknown that you wrestle with where in some kind of way, there's an odd comfort to some of the predictability that comes along with the disability. Wow. And so it's something you would never, um, you're not really faced with until you're kind of with it. And then you kind of like, oh, like I have to actually realistically expect it yeah, Sunflower might actually be with us our entire life. Okay, well, if I'm looking for a home, then I'm thinking, okay, I need a bigger property. I'm going to build her a back house or buy a tiny home. You know, so you just, you're thinking, you're just already thinking differently than the idea of like, oh, well, I'm I'm buying a tiny house for my 30-year-old son who can't get his act together. Yeah. <laughs> like that's yeah, different, yeah, yeah. That's a totally different dynamic. So it's yes. just, that's, that's like, I wouldn't necessarily, I think, want that. <laughs> but like, you know, with, with like a neurotypical kid, like I'm like, yeah. I kind of really want you to be thriving <laughs> in the world. Like there's no reason that maybe you shouldn't have that opportunity. So there's, yeah. there's that interesting kind of attention that I think most people, I find when I bring that up or talk about that with other people, a lot of folks are like, oh, well, I never, I never really mm-hmm. thought about it that way. It doesn't, yeah, I, I'm terrified of what my, whatever, my normal kid 
might do, you know, but mm-hmm. it's like that. I, I, I talked about that a lot when I had my first son, it was like, Oh, you excited? I'm like, man, in a lot of ways I'm terrified. Cause I just like, what I got this. Um, I feel that just responsibility of being, being a male raising, you know, a firstborn male kind of thing and just having, you know, unfortunate and unsaid pressures and expectations I might throw upon him that are unfair. And then on top of that, like just what, what kind of nonsense he might get himself into. So yeah, no doubt. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I might, I might pause cause I'm interested in hearing more about your fatherness, but I'm interested about your siblings um, dynamics to one another. Um, how do they engage and interact with, um, yeah, Sonny's like uh, differentness. How do they perceive that? And then how is that normalized in your family and your household? And um, yeah, just tell me a bit of, a yeah. little bit about that. Yeah, I don't, um, as far as Rhodes goes, my, my, uh, my second oldest, he, I want to say we're probably right around that threshold where he's going to start asking more questions about like <laughs> what makes Sunny different. Um, the language of Down syndrome has, has slightly come up because we have close friends who live around the corner who have two kids with Down syndrome. So the, he sort of recognizes that there's, you know, something different about them. But I mean, as far as play and engagement and all that goes, I mean, there's nothing different at all. I mean, like it's, uh, they're, Sunny has always been uh, fortunately high functioning, filled with tons of energy um always driving the games forward driving whatever she's doing forward i mean it's she's um significantly delayed in her speech so like her her actual like amount she has a lot of words but like her articulation of those words is just hard to understand so it's it takes um you're you're forced into the work of like learning her language and so it's it's not like well she doesn't say a lot so we don't kind of don't know it's like she's constantly talking at you and telling you stuff and you just have to figure it out and so Rhodes I think in a way has probably learned more of her language than we have so you know him being with her like just constantly he's I think really kind of figured out her own you know kind of dialect and in her delay and so um they're thick as thieves they're best friends um they're always doing stuff her she's actually lately really kind of grown really close with um with Shepard, my, my third oldest, and he's the, the three-year-old or almost three-year-old. She's always come and asking him to come play. And he's really now like developing a lot of his own language. And so he's like, they're really just getting along that much more. And then they, and then all the kids love the baby. I'm sunflower wants to hold him all the time and yeah. you know, she's all over him, but um, yeah, it doesn't, That's, it's as much as you might expect the, the, the sense of differentness at a young age that as far as their dynamic goes, they don't, they don't notice. Yeah. A, whole, a whole lot, at least right now. Yeah, what's funny is I was watching a um, documentary on Ronda Rousey the other day on Netflix, and she had a speech uh, delay as well as a child. And yeah. what you just said actually rang true. Her siblings knew what she was saying all the time, and the siblings yeah. would actually have to translate and interpret for the mm-hmm. parents. This is what Rhonda means when she says X, Y, or Z. Yeah. Um, that's cool, man. Hey, as a father, you, you started talking about raising your son and some of the, you know, uh, perils of what that could mean as a father what frightens you or what do you think about when you think about your your kids down the path down down the line what's something that you're like man I'm either praying over this because it's you know on my heart or on my mind or I'm like I just have no idea how I'm going to deal with this when they get to this age and what are some of those things that you think about as a father I think about 
if my sons will have the ability to forgive me faster than I've forgiven my own dad. Mm. Like it took me a long time to get to a place where I could walk in a place where I could kind of daily forgive um, the lack of la- lack of relationship, passivity, um, and desired connection I wish I had with my own dad. Granted, my dad, like, and that's a, here's the thing. It's like I, I was raised in a, a perfectly fine middle class kind of life. I mean, it's, it's like to a fault, right? It's like it, it's so just, it's so stable that it just, it lacks all dynamic and, and feeling. So it just, um, and my parents were doing their best and were, thought they were, believe still to this day that they, they'd made the right choices and did the right thing by um, keeping us in a, a, a nice, safe life and neighborhood. And I think I just, I just went through a much more dynamic um, late college, early 20s kind of experience in my life where I felt like the world instantly was thrust upon me and there was just a, such a grander reality than I was even revealed to. So I kind of felt like this resentment of like, man, I feel like really unprepared for what this world actually is like. And so that kind of naturally at that age, you throw it all on your parents of like, well, what, what was the, you know, what, what about this? And what about that? You don't have answers for that. Like, you know, and you, you wrestle with all those things. And as you're kind of in those formative, you know, adult years of your twenties and I, I, I think it's it's partly that meaning that I know I'm going to make mistakes as a dad, and so I think it's just I'm hoping that they arrive at some form of maturity at whatever age where they realize those mistakes early and are able to forgive those mistakes earlier than later. In that way, there's less time of you know resentment and struggle in our relationship versus like actual adult relationship. And I think that's what I really look forward to and pray for is is that. Um, when they're kind of of their adult age that we have like actually a really, you know, deep, like actual good, like adult relationship. It's not, they're not living in this shadow of like, well, he's my dad. He's my father, you know, that kind of thing. Like it's, and it's not to say like, Oh, it's cause I really want to be friends with my kids. It's like, no, like I, I just want to have an actual really rich, you know, adult father to son relationship, you know, when, once at their, they're that age. Yeah, no doubt. And how weird is it? Like now being on this side of the lens, you've been the son your whole life and now you're entering into that father figure yeah. and um, how natural that is, how, how much we desire relationship with our kids in a way that's not dysfunctional at an adult age. I'm thinking through that as well, man. Like I, yeah. I just gave my testimony. Um, I, I give it all the time for different reasons and things like that. And, and look, there's no um, working around itself. The first seven years of my life were, were wrought with chaos and a lot of challenges. But now I'm trying to figure out and articulate how do I honor my mom and dad and still tell truth in the midst of that chaos, in the midst of that brokenness, right? Um, mm-hmm. And how it relates to what you're talking about is my relationship with them is so robust now. There's been a lot of carnage and a lot of, but there's been so much reconciliation that now I can have a conversation at that adult adult level and not have this, you know, they're my hero or the villain because they've let me down or they've, you know, worked right. these things out. But then also as it relates to just relationally being with our parents, the, the, the thing is tipped somewhat, you know, we, we, we were the sons and we were distant and now we're like, man, we're as the fathers, we want to draw near and draw close and have that relationship. I think there's something very, I don't know, I'm just musing and I'm spitballing, but there's something very Christ-like about that. Something very, 
godly about that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, 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 uh, I, I don't know if you've read much about, um, uh, he was a psychologist uh, named M. Scott Peck. And he, he wrote a, he wrote a book called, uh, the something wheel, but it basically what it's about is like the four stages of, of spiritual maturity. And, and this is more like, this is like, you know, this is individual kind of per person type of thing, but it's, it's, it, um, it does help to kind of create a narrative for what it's like to grow even relationship with parent. And so like, like the first stage, the idea behind that is, is like chaos and, and warfare. Like it's this, you're, you're thrust into this world where everything is just a fighting to survive, you know, kind of way of, of managing, um, your existential issues and your existence and all of that. Right. And then uh, second stage is typically built around structure and form. And so it's like eventually you arrive at a place where you, you need and, and recognize structure and form as, as your way of helping to like combat that previous stage. But like you're able to like identify what actual spirituality is built upon because now you have an actual path and a map for how you can participate and, and navigate through those things. Between each of these four stages is typically crisis that actually kind of shifts the stages itself. So then after stage two, um, with norms and forms, you have, you know, what people typically call deconstruction. And so it's like all of a sudden something thrust you into where those systems and forms don't seem to work anymore. You know, it's like something has entered into your worldview or your, you know, your daily in which like kind of like disrupts what was reliable about the previous system that allowed you to um, have a place, feel like you can belong. But all of a sudden now there's, there's something that puts you on the outs or something you wrestle with. And then um, and then basically stage four is typically what's, what's considered your, um, it's, it's actually having a comfort with mystery is like the best way to kind of say it. It's like you, you enter into a place of recognizing that, um, you know, not everything can be so easily answered and decided upon. Uh, it's not systematic. Things feel a bit more organic. You find flexibility and bend. And if anything, you actually are more comfortable entering back into other people's norms and forms and structures because you're not reliant upon them yourself. You're able to actually kind of rest in them and, and even be comfortable with maybe where there's tension or disagreement like between mm -hmm. your own view of it or like their view of it in that way. But like I think with parenting, um, there's there's a lot of relativity in that because it's like you, you know, with a parent, you have all these expectations, you're growing up. Right. And it's like, Oh, my dad's supposed to be this, or my my mom is supposed to be that, or this is what family is supposed to be like, whatever, whatever thing you're participating in society, it's informing what that system is supposed to be. And it can be total TV, you know, systematic, like kind of feelings like, Oh, I watch television and my dad is supposed to be like this mix of, uh, <laughs> of Danny Tanner and Joey Gladstone and, and, you know, and uncle Jesse like this, this dynamic kind of sense of safety, but like, they're all like one's super clean and one's funny and one's a rock star. Like it, it's just, there's, you can develop all these personas for what your life is supposed to be like, but then all of a sudden you're thrust into the world. And you, or you make friends with suddenly like their parents aren't like that at all. Like, Oh, your parents are, Whoa, like, you know, they're, they're going through a divorce or like you have, you know, two dads or two moms, or you have a single parent. And it's just, they're all of a sudden the entire dynamic of what parents look like looks totally different and it could totally shake up the way that you feel. Right. And so, but as then you become your own parent, you start looking back at those systems and like, wait, what worked, what didn't work. And then you, you kind of just have to like navigate the whole thing and, and find a place where, um, you have enough grace for yourself to fail, but then also like you find a way to uh, raise your kids to also return the grace, you know, and be able to like 
help like help them see like that you're not going to be perfect and like you need grace from them too like you need you know they have to learn how to be able to forgive even the the systems that we tried to give them to actually help them give you know a view of the world and a way to operate in it you know so um that that that's been a a really cool framework that i've kind of been living in now for for a few years of looking at like that kind of journey which has been both actually obviously um, you know, faith related. And also I think like just with looking at the whole organic and spiritual element of, of being a parent. Yeah. That might've been a really long answer. That was excellent, man. I mean, I was, look, I went to public school, so I was trying to keep up with the systems and the four steps and everything, but then you actually, I think you landed that in a way that was succinct and it helped me to understand. Um, love to go on one more journey with you real quick. When was the last time out of that thinking, when was the last time you apologized to one of your children in a way that was deep or profound or had impact on you? Like, you know, cause you're, you're wanting to model repentance. You're wanting to model, um, uh, that relational dynamic of, you know, coming back together. Is there a time that you can remember that you've apologized to them in recent history? Um, hmm. and it could be simple, but it, it could be profound moments and, yeah, yeah, man. They're simple. Um, I think uh, in my mind, like I can. <laughs> this is this is obviously parenting in quarantine, right? I mean, it's just like yeah, yeah, like, yeah. It's Groundhog's Day. Like every day is the same. <laughs> like it's unreal. Yeah. Um, I think I feel like every day I'm apologizing to my kids. <laughs> mm, good man. Uh, yeah, yeah. I think good. like I think uh, I I don't know. I I must have probably raised my voice at Shepherd a couple times because he's he's kind of you know he's he's in that state where he's he's definitely whining his language a little bit more and like i'm my concern he's starting to think that if he's more negative about how he speaks he gets more attention so it's like we, mm. we're, we're trying to think of how to shift that a bit yeah. but i specifically i can remember um me this might have been a couple weeks ago but um i think it's more recently we've kind of all of a sudden had those like family meeting types of like sit downs lately where it's kind of like okay okay everyone get in here right now like sit down (laughs) i need to know that what i'm gonna say right now is heard like so there's there's those you know like there's there's been more of those lately where it's feel it's feeling like it's okay to shut everything down and and the the kids are allowed to all sit together and just listen to what mom and dad have to say Mm -hmm. and so i think um there was a couple weeks ago where i felt like in talking it was like this is serious you need to do this kind of thing. And simultaneously it was saying like, you know, I'm sorry if this is, if this is too loud, if this is coming across like this way, you know, and it, it it's like, um, you know, and, and it's them asking them, like, do you understand and getting a yes or that kind of thing and saying like, you know, I'm sorry that this is, you know, if this is feeling like too loud or too disruptive and it's hurting your feelings. And, you know, they, they typically say like, it's okay. Or, you know, that kind of thing. And mm. um, I think it, you know, it's interesting though. Like, I think it's actually really important to model the language of like, though, do you forgive me? You know, I think it's like you, it's, you know, and, I, and I'm saying that because I don't always do that. It's just, it's to actually have them hear someone ask for forgiveness, I think is a really important kind of um, language model to, to to bring up and it's a good one for me to practice if i want them to learn it because i think i want them to be able to see the wrongdoing in their own life and be able to say to someone you know like you know do you forgive me and then like obviously the second layer of that is going to help them learn it's like and it's okay when someone doesn't 
you know, it's like, and when they don't forgive you, it's understanding that it's like, okay, that, that just means it's a real pain. And, you know, forgiveness is not always something that's expected or, you know, required, you know, but some, it's, it's something that I think as a person you need to seek. And that's like, I think that's, that's really, that's the difference right there. Well, it's the one that we don't, um, I feel like it's the one that is so easy overlooked. Like, so we do the, the simple, please, sorry, thank you with Luca in terms of prayer. When we pray to God, we, we do just, you know, one, please, one, sorry, one, thank you. And the mm-hmm. sorry one is just like pulling teeth, you know, because in order to say, I'm sorry, there has to be a recognition that I've done something wrong. And, um, right. Look, it doesn't, like we don't always we don't force him in that regard, but we're trying to model that. But I'm I'm interested in how hard that sorry is to actually come about. And so hmm. it's on my mind that look, we need to be modeling this more and more and more and normalizing grace and normalizing um, aspects of repentance that will hopefully be helpful as he as he relates to God. Um, yeah. So so let me ask you a question. Like how hmm. um when you're looking at a moral binary, you know, it's like when we're looking at kids and trying to understand their scope of the ideas of what they've done wrong versus what they've done right. Like how in your mind, I'm not sure what the question is here, but like, how do you, do you think that there is, well, one, okay. It, the question is going to be, do you think? And secondly is going to be, how do you determine? Mm. One is, do you find yourself easily transporting your own moral binary to theirs and like simply assuming that they understand right and wrong as easily as you do? And then B, how, if, if, uh, if yes is the answer, does that, does that strike you as problematic? And B, if no is the answer and you have like a dynamic for like that, what, what determines the difference and, and how do you like how kind of like if because if grace is actually more of like a parameter not necessarily just like a, a binary thing mm-hmm. it, you, you understand what i'm saying there yeah i think so i i guess for me brother the one thing that i'm y- yes so i'm um always i guess um what's the word seeking to inform luca or or molding him or you know with my worldview and, and my lenses and my understanding of how I relate to God. Right. But at the same time, uh, I, I just watched the doco on, um, Fred Rogers the other day, Mr. Rogers. Oh yeah. And that the did, documentary, it, the movie, the documentary, oh, it, yeah, okay. it, it made me cry three times. Like his purity was like that verse, you know, um, yeah. be good. And, and it'll be like heaping lumps of hot coal on you. You know, like mm-hmm. I was just like broken with his, kindness and his vulnerability and his goodness and his purity. Um, But in that doco, getting to your question, um, it was the understanding that I have such a like far removed reality than my six and a half year old son, right? Mm -hmm. Like he's thinking in uh, play and he's thinking in um, fantasy and, and, and all these things are not concrete in the way that they're concrete to me. So I guess out of that, there's a book called Give Them Grace and um, it's quite radical, but the idea is essentially from birth, you want to teach them about grace. Like you want to give them the language of grace. You want to, um, uh, so much so that you like pull back on some of the reward system and that, you know, in terms of your parenting dynamic. And so I thought to instill that at one point in time. And I just realized there's aspects that are just unwise about a full, like fully landing in this camp. 
of teaching mm-hmm. grace all the time and not teaching, you know, um, repercussions and responsibility and some of that kind of yeah. stuff. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, I guess to answer your question, I'm often um, seeking to evaluate what is helpful at his stage of development. And that's, brother, that's a wisdom call that, look, me and you are for the rest of our lives, right? You know, what yeah. is wisdom in this moment? Right. Um, and, and I think right now, uh, as a parent, my wisdom and, and what I'm learning is to slow down. I want to control his behavior. I want to um, push him into boxes. I want to um, get him, yeah, to, to jump through certain hoops, you know, that I've ticked off. Oh, he gets this or he understands this. And I'm just like, look, slow down, like love this child in simple ways, profound ways that Jesus would love us and would father us. And so I'm trying to adopt that more and more in my understanding and my being, I suppose, mm-hmm. as it relates to Luca. Right, right. Yeah. And I ask that because it's, it's, I find myself uh, definitely, I think, sometimes stuck on, you know, just my, my view of, you know, right and wrong. And, you know, it's like, it's, it's, I, I find myself wrestling with like, oh, they, they just don't get that. You know, it's like, it's just not, it doesn't, it doesn't come like that. They don't have the the language or the mental, you know, complexity to, to navigate the problem of that or that. And, and then what I find myself doing is like, um, often I, I end up getting just a bit more crude and a bit more like black and white about like what I want, what I don't want with them. Cause mm-hmm. I kind of just feel like you just, you just don't do it. You don't do it. Like, it's just, it's not <laughs> like, it's just not yeah. okay. Like, you just don't do it. And it's not yeah. because it's like, Cause I realize, like in my own worldview, there's, there's a lot of gray maybe in what I'm saying or, or what I know is actually like what I would prefer them to do or not. But it's just kind of like right now you just, you just don't do it. Once you start asking why, you know, it's like, okay, you know, and I know there's a why, you know, once my, once my, you know, five-year-old, he's already like asking the why question, like why this or why that and why this and why that. And I'm, I'm and in some ways I'm just, I, I have the capacity to humor it. I'll just, I don't care. I'll go all day. I'll, I'll give you a thousand answers as to, to what you're asking. Cause it's like, it's just going to give him other, other nuggets of thought and things. I mean, but that kid has been thinking from the womb. I mean, so it's, and I recognize that. And so that's where I'm a little bit like, I don't shy away from him asking why I'm, we were just the other day, man, we, it's like, I feel like we probably had our most profound conversation on death and it had to do with me prepping a chicken to smoke it. Yeah. You know? And so it was just kind of like, where did chicken come from? Yeah. yeah, The chicken, it's like that chicken died, huh? Yeah. And he was just like, so he's dead. He's not, and it's just like, he's not going to fly anymore. Cause like my other kid came in with like, Oh, the chicken, it's going to fly. And it's just like, mm-hmm. and it's like, no, that chicken's dead. And so it was just like having this whole conversation around like the idea of death had to come through the idea of food provision. So it's like, that became the, the conversation. It was like, you know, you know, food is, you know, how, and obviously however you look at food, whether you're vegan or vegetarian, yeah. it's just, this is, I eat meat. So therefore that's the narrative. Mm-hmm. So it, it was just really like a circle of life conversation, but it had to do with like, Hey, well, you know, you watch your cartoons where, um, or, or he had just watched, it was like a Disney movie on like elephants. And there was a whole narrative about these elephants traveling across Africa, but they had to deal with like the tension and struggle of lions hunting them. Mm-hmm. So like, and that's the most amazing thing as a parent side note, is watching movies and realizing how many massive concepts they're introducing at such a young age. Mm-hmm. 
Mm. Like I, I struggle with that so much. Cause I'm like, damn it. Now I'm gonna have to talk about this. <laughs> My kid doesn't like really realize how like complex that issue is. And it's so it's, they, they thrust our kids into, into these, these ideas very, very quickly. And that's not some conspiracy on like Hollywood media. That's just, just recognizing that there's adults writing kids stories and they, they, they themselves want it to be good. So they're writing in these very big concept narratives. That being said, I still have to like, as a parent with my kids watching these, I have to now work out these narratives. So now it's like the whole idea of lions attacking elephants is now that it has transported into this whole conversation about the reality of death. Yeah. Right. And yeah. so it's just, but it, it really, it, it obviously reawakened through talking about like preparing a chicken, mm-hmm. you know, to actually mm-hmm. like cook it. So it's just the, the very crude conversation there is obviously just like, well, it's like, you know, and, you know, humans have chosen to, you know, continue to kill animals because it provides us food and nourishment. And there's a lot of protein in meat and it helps with really good brain development. And that's kind of the anthropo- anthropological history of humans and why we eat meat. Um, and other animals eat other animals. I mean, then that's kind of, it's just, it's hard because death had to feel much more like a conversation of the contemporary moment of necessity, not necessarily like the the bigger faith concept of death right it's so it's mm. it's just like things mm. have to die like even killing bugs in the house in yeah. like instigates a conversation about death yeah so it's just that's funny that's- i had a existential crisis and i went vegetarian for seven years because of an ant in a shower <laughs> just just <laughs> like I, I i smushed him out and i'm just like wait what what gives me the right to smush out this thing and then i'm like hold on I'm eating things. And, you know, that was a, that was a moment in my teens that seven years later, um, yeah, not eating meat. Yeah. But, um, yeah hey, not surprised. brother, I could talk to you about parenting for all forever and ever. And I love catching yeah. up with you um, just in general, but I'd love to know a little bit about your professional life. There's a lot that interests me. Um, and we got, you know, uh, 15, 20 more minutes here. Tell me about, I guess what you're doing right now and maybe a little bit of a, yeah, just tell me what you're up to right now. When you said freelance gig, what does that mean to you? Yep. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I am a freelance creative director. And so what that basically means is a lot of the things that fall under the parameters of creative direction, I make available for uh, projects and, and clients that are looking to hire. Um, so it's, uh, I've got a few contracts that are longstanding, like um, year long contracts. Um, but I've, I've developed actually a special niche in podcasting for the last uh, five years or so. Um, I was uh, formerly the co-host of um, a pretty a, a good podcast in kind of in the faith industry, uh, which is still going. And um, and then I produce on uh, three, four. I got four shows going right now, and then I'm working on developing two other ones right now. So, podcast producing has become really exciting and a lot of fun. Um, it's it's an interesting thing to discuss. It's kind of the wild west with like what it looks like to develop a successful podcast. Um, but a lot of my angle is helping people understand how podcasting works as a marketing tool for pre-existing organizations. And so, it's like I help to um, inform and develop around the ideas that. Uh, long form narrative about your organization and product help to develop like a closer sense of um, DNA to what you do and and how you develop Mm. um, like believability and buy into those who participate in what you do. And I think Mm. podcasting offers um, probably one of the best mediums to actually make that happen. And so, yeah, prior to that, I've been working in church ministry for probably close to 
man, 10 years. And so it's uh, between doing that and then I, I did creative direction at, at some, uh, I, I mean, at one, you know, good sized church in Orange County. And then, mm-hmm. um, yeah, so that's kind of where I've arrived. But I mean, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. yeah. Can, can you tell me, like, I mean, I, I want to dig a little bit, um, if you're okay to talk about that church and the podcast and yeah, the, for sure. the kind of the, um, the you know, we, we kept we kept in touch and there was times we were chatting about this, but I'd love to know what is the, what is the story arc for you? You know, um, you started as this, it turned into this and left because this, I'd love to just know if you were able to share some of that. Cause I think it's incredibly interesting. I, I love what you yeah. guys did through that time. And I think, yeah, that'd be great to hear about. Yeah, for sure. So, um, it, it, the, the entire story without going into like an entire chapter, you know, chapter book, you know, long kind of thing, but, you know, <laughs> to sum it all up. Mm-hmm. Um, so I grew up in a pretty relatively conservative uh, church environment, um, meaning like that by, by that meaning, like no instruments for worship. And then my services were like two hours long. And so oh, it's just, yeah. there's like, there's, yeah. you know, there's a teaching sermon and the drums are the devil's for communion. Tool. Yeah. Right. yeah. And, and, yeah. and I'll, I'll shortcut a bunch of stuff, but the most yeah. amazing thing is like our way of doing communion for that church was one of the things that was maybe in the most longstanding and most deeply profound things that I still, I still engage with. <laughs> and I, I look back and I'm like, because my church did it this way, I, I, I have such a deeper appreciation for it even still to this day. Mm-hmm. Anyways, side, a sidetrack. So then growing up- well, Hold that, on, what do they do? You, got, you can't just like- leave No, 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 really nothing, nothing. It was a very okay. sterile, it's just that like it treated half of our church, church morning experience was dedicated to communion. Okay. So it was like, you, you came in, you did worship out of hymn books and one person singing up front with like a little, um, uh, with a, a pipe, uh, what's it called? freaking organ oh yeah windpipe no windpipe oh, no like okay. windpipe yeah, <laughs> okay. tune the note this song's in g sharp and then you sang hymns and it was yeah. it was all vocal classic um but then like you did i that. won't be in i won't be in that room in heaven i'm just letting you know like when we get <laughs> yeah. the separate rooms bro yeah. you and me both and so we well maybe sometimes i'm into it sometimes yeah yeah but like it uh it, it went from that into uh like literally like a 20 minute teaching that was the communion teaching and then after that, like, then there was like you, it was all communion presentation. So it was like, you did the bread first, there was a prayer and then they went down and passed it all out. And then they went back up, they did um, the wine, but it was, it was, you know, grape juice. And then they did that separately. And so it was like that. And then after that, then they like dismissed kids and then did like sermon teaching, which was mm. then another like 30 minutes mm. and then worship after that. So the entire like church service itself, like literally went between like an hour and a half and two hours long. And so it just, and, and there's, and the only, you know, any form of, uh, you know, graphics or creativity was like overhead projectors and like dry erase markers. Right. Absolutely. So it's, yeah. You know, so that's, so the, 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 uh, the, the funny thing about that whole experience though, was without realizing how much kind of um, uh, creativity I embodied, I didn't feel like I had a place in the church because largely it was like, I'm learning how to play music. I'm learning how to be creative. Like I kind of like photography. I kind of like, I was starting to do graphic design by using like, you know, Microsoft paint and like making just weird stuff for, I look, (laughs) I think the stuff I was making at the time, like this was weird. Like I didn't, I was making like greeting cards and it was just nonsense on like, you know, whatever. But 
that, you know, very looking back was deeply informing a sense of like, you know, artistic creativity and abstractness in, in reality that I was seeking to understand and kind of navigate. So long story short, between having a, a short career in music and pursuing band life and doing all of that, um, ended up in a much more creatively oriented church uh, in my young 20s. Um, with a pastor named Mike Erie and who basically what you know brought me back to like I think a deep form of spirituality by simply forgiving you know asking for forgiveness for what the church has done Mm. and so like in doing so that deeply shaped you know uh, my reality up until this point I was kind of just rejecting the idea of organized church altogether but in him saying the church is sorry for all of its odd and strange things it's done for me translated into um, I'm sorry that the church is trying to reach you in very odd and you know kind of unconventional and like you know disruptive and disorienting ways basically realizing the church is a, an, ab- an absolute failure and but it was trying and so I but so with all my critique at that age I was like well I, I can't um, I can't critique the problem if I'm not willing to try to be a part of it. And yeah, so, right. So that plunged yeah, yeah. me into then pursuing ministry in my you know mid twenties. And then that fast forward, let's fast forward, uh, you know, whatever, seven years. And then I'm, so I'm the creative director at a church in Fullerton of like 5,000 people or whatever. Mike Erie is the pastor at that church at this time. Um, he leaves that church, asked me to help him start a podcast. And so I help him start um, a show called the Vox podcast. And within four months, we're basically saying not so different than what I just said was we can't sit around on this podcast and critique the church and not try to start one. And so because largely what the reason we started the podcast was because he was like, there's so many things I've not been allowed to say for so many years. Mm. And I just want to talk about them. You know, it's not that I need to make claim on these things. But like, without having a board, like it's just, you're giving freedom to someone who is not trying to be reckless, but realizing that in what he would say would sound reckless to something so systematic, but felt at the same time, so absolutely necessary amidst everything he was experiencing up until that point, Mm -hmm. which is at that point, 20 years of him doing ministry. And so can I pause you right there? I want to get further into the story, but what's a moment that you remembered or a topic that you remembered that felt quote reckless? Like, what does that mean when you say that word or something where he felt mitigated from the pulpit? Like, I can't say this, but if I'm in podcast form, I can talk about this. Do you remember a time or a moment? Yeah. I mean, um, he couldn't say from the stage that the entire culture war culture war on evangelical Christianity versus the LGBTQ was absolutely insane and say that like to having to deal with how the church managed specifically he dealt with a lot of flack during the prop eight kind of stuff back in california if you remember that would have been in like 2000 and like eight or seven it's okay like australians lived it here a couple of years yeah ago. similar yeah, thing yeah, but yeah yeah for sure but it's like he it's just the he was just thinking back to the conversations he was having around the issue mm-hmm. and just felt trapped and like felt like why can't I don't I don't understand why we have to navigate it this way and when it's like I just feel like we should be correcting all the wrongs that mm. like the system is kind of like created in the mm. way that we discuss the issue like you know and realizing that how stances were being made that stancing itself was like more problematic than actually being willing to have a dialogue about it 
Yeah. And so it's just like his thing is really a lot of it was like him having the room to be able to just say it. it's like it wasn't so much about making claims more than it was about like I need a I need permission in a space where I can just say this out loud. Yeah. You know, it's like it's like it yeah. was it's like the first degree of 10 degrees of what like we should really be able to have capacity for in the church itself. Yeah. And it was just like, it was finally arriving at degree one. <laughs> and yeah. it's like, and that alone was like moving a mountain. So it's just that, I mean, that was, and that was like episode one, you know, but it's like from, from there. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. That's good. Let's start yeah, here. So, yeah. yeah. So it's like, that was, you know, we started there and then it's just, and then, and this was, man, so you got to imagine this is the fall of 2015. So this is right before 2016 campaigning into the election. Mm-hmm. So then like, you know, that, that just completely blew things up like it actually i would say was more eruptive getting into the getting into the election to be honest Mm. so um and and there's been wonderful nuanced episodes about politics in the church ever since then and so Mm. um but yeah i mean it was it was us being willing to discuss the taboo issues in a in a form that was like we need to make this a safe space to discuss this stuff. The church should be the safest place to talk about anything. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and, and it was like, we quickly realized and he realized that podcasting might be one of the most like opportunistic mediums to be able to push the narrative and the dialogue of the church forward if you're willing to engage in it and not rely on like what you do with the same returning 4,000 people in a building. But realizing that we spent less than $1,500 in equipment and in four months, we're reaching 10,000 people a month. And it's like, and now that, now that show has a regular life, 65,000 people listen to that show per month and at the cost of whatever, however many hours he puts in to talk about what he wants to talk about, but like the budget, (laughs) the budget to run that thing. It's just like, it's like he quickly saw that and was like, I can't, how did you, how do you go from running a $9 million budget to satisfy 4,000 people who show up every week to then spending $1,500 and reaching 65,000 people per month. Yeah. That's incredible. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, tell me, okay. So tell me a little bit about that. What was the, um, what was the transition space from podcast to church? Went and visited Fox church. That was incredible. Yeah. Um, seeing you running around with your head, headset, <laughs> frantic and crazy as an XP or whatever your role was. But no, tell me about um, what was, two things maybe, what was binding about that medium of Sunday gatherings and what was uh, a blessing? What was something that was unexpected that, you know, wow, yeah. this was, yeah. Yep, absolutely. So, I mean, the reason, like I said before, the reason we had to start a church was like, we, we couldn't, you know, sit around on a microphone and critique the thing without actually trying to do it. But part of it was like, what was, well, what do you do? What do you do in person that you just simply can't do otherwise? Because, you know, bottom line, you can get the best theology teaching 24 seven, mm-hmm. you know, you, you know, take your pick, you know, whether it's books or audio or video or whatever, doesn't matter where you are in the world, you know, there is access to some of the most profound knowledge being discussed around theology and faith and all of those things. So what, what can you do in a church that isn't dependent on how, how compactful that can be? Now, there, there's, there's a whole journey to discuss about like our church that we started on its own, which is called Vox Community. Still going, um, different than what it was from the beginning, thank God, um, in all the best ways. 
Yeah, and it's and it's not even because it, there was it's not it's not because it was a failure. It's because it was an absolute success. Um, they're completely volunteer run now. I mean, there's like there's no paid staff. Wow. Um, it, they they handled this transition into quarantine like kings. Like it was just like they instantly first week this thing happened. All right, cool. We're doing church on Zoom. They were on it. Mm-hmm. Like it, it didn't even they didn't even skip a beat. Um, but uh. Okay, so you know, getting starting a church based out of a podcast, it, it made our thing was that you know everything was was guided towards communion, because communion in Eucharist is like was the one place that confronts everybody, no matter where you're at. Everyone comes to communion having to give something up. It doesn't matter if you're a conservative, if you're a liberal, or progressive, if you're if you're gay, if you're straight, if you're you know male or female or married or single. Like it's just when you're confronting Eucharist, you're accepting this fantastic and wonderful invitation into the life of Jesus every time you approach it. Mm-hmm. And in order to, you know, align yourself with that participation, he calls you, he constantly calls you to reconsider whatever it is you make first, you know? And so our whole thing was like, what, what does it require for us to create an experience that just that draws people towards realizing the beauty of, mm-hmm. of participating with Jesus that we believe is, is truly beautiful. Now, seeking the beauty of Jesus is a very complicated dialogue. How do you find the beauty of Jesus in the Old Testament, right? Like, how do you find the beauty of Jesus in a perceivingly angry God of the Old Testament? And, you know, th- those are all bigger theological questions for another time. But as a church, it was, can we create a space where we can learn to love and serve each other? Um, uh, well, to love and serve the world and not stand in judgment of it. You know, it's mm. like, can we, you know, regardless of, of where we differ and where we disagree, you know, what does it require for us to love and serve each other? You know, and that, and that was, you know, so that was how, that was really how we held everything out was, it was always kind of a question. And so the, the service was very liturgically oriented. Part of that liturgy was a Q&A session. And so it was that, you know, there was a number to texting questions as the sermon was going. And then we typically answer those questions the next Sunday. And it always, so the service always started out with like, so this question came in, mm-hmm. what do you mean by this? Or what do you think about this? This just happened this week in politics. What do you think about this? I mean, because one of the values was the church should be, should be the safest place to talk about anything. Mm-hmm. And so it meant that we needed to create pathways of, of like structural vision that actually matched that claim. Mm-hmm. So we couldn't just say that. It meant there mm-hmm. needed to be practical things that people could do that mm-hmm. really said like, literally ask us anything and sometimes you have to be okay if the answer is i don't know because the truth is if if there's a really hard question and someone's trying to give you an answer they might just be bullshit you know and it's just like they it's just sometimes the more truthful answer is saying like to be honest i don't i don't really know here's my immediate response to that but like i that's not an answer yeah it's a response yeah that's a response and so it's just we had to um you know we had to really really make that a thing and but the beauty of that is then that shaped how everything moved forward because it told us where people were at. It informed us what people were thinking, what they really wanted to ask. And there was a beauty in the, in the crudeness of, of where people were at in their journey. And like, just like asking these very big and simple, not simple, very complex questions, but seemingly obviously difficult questions to answer that you're like, man, there just isn't a straightforward answer for that. And we are faced with having to stand on stage and being okay with saying like, 
that's a really hard question. And I don't have an answer for that. And here's what I've grown to believe about that idea. And that might not be the same for a lot of us in here. And that's yeah. okay. Let me pause you, know? you right there. Yeah. Where was a moment where you felt like your parents were down? Where you're like, oh man, I got to provide an answer. I got to provide a response. And I just, I don't know. Can you think of a time that you wrestled with that in a onstage persona or, or you know, having to be the, the mouthpiece for said topic or said question? Uh, so to be fair, uh, I haven't been on stage at this thing in over a year. So mm-hmm. it's, it's uh, so then thinking back to them when I've been on stage and had to kind of like look at uh, some of these responses. Um, I can't get specific. Mike, I, there's plenty of times where Mike, um, was on stage and, and had, I don't know, as an answer. Mm-hmm. And it was more, it was honestly, it was really with like questions of like some of the more fantastical ideas of the old Testament. It would have been stuff like we had questions about the Nephilim. We had mm-hmm. questions about like, what about if Israel was acting like this way? why how would that how would that make god a loving god if if this was like israel was giving god credit for this kind of action right Mm -hmm. and so it's like it's kind of you know in those kinds of situations it's like what we would often do is like well here's this theologian looks at it this way and this other theologian looks at it that way yeah and they're seemingly opposing yeah but they could be equally right and you know so because it's like there's it's we, since we don't have it right in front of us, we really can't answer that question. You just have to kind of sit in the conflict and the tension of there's good scholarship on both sides of the aisle. And that, that was like common. Like we, we'd have yeah. plenty of folks that would ask questions where it was like, they're like from a hardline reformed camp and would be like, what about this? And it's kind of like, well, I can see where maybe that might, you know, make sense. And then, but someone who, who was way on the other side would have a completely different experience of that. But it's like, each experience is equally valid. It's, you know, so it's not, you can't just say there's satisfaction and justification for both responses. It's, it's, there's always that, that tension of realizing that someone's experience of something is, is also true. Like where God shows up in other people's lives and doesn't show up in others. That would probably be more, one of the common answers is like, well, why did, why did God miraculously heal my friend from cancer, but won't heal mine? Right. Yeah. So I, I, there was, I do remember there was a couple that were kind of more like around that type of thing. Yeah, that's good, man. Hey, we're coming to the end of our time. Thank you so much for today, Andy. But uh, I'll close with, and, and one question just to close with, um, I am hopeful that all of us uh, have the end game in mind, have eternity in mind. And there is something that you are expectant or hopeful of. And so curious to know you as a, a believer, what's something that you are expectant, hopeful thinking about as it relates to eternity at this stage of your maturity and discipleship and understanding of God and eternity what's something that you are thinking about in this time all right so so there's two two big concepts there um one that is by far the most tangible and profound thought is what will it really mean in heaven to see my daughter with down syndrome fully reconciled Mm. because that will be it's like that's a weird tension because it's i don't there's no way i could believe in loving my child more than i love her now Mm -hmm. like i don't need her to change 
Yeah. You know, I don't, I don't need her to be healed. I don't need her to be fixed. So it's, it's like, what then does God reveal about her in this eternal idea that, you know, mm-hmm. all, all the fallenness of, of man is, is wiped away and removed and purified and fully revealed. That's this great mystery of that, you know, that kind of circumstance. And you kind of dream about like, is it, you know, what, how beautiful is that going to look? So that's all that I really wrestle with, with that and, and dream about is like, what is the complexity of that? that beauty in that picture. The other is that I fully believe I'm living in eternity now. You know, if eternity truly is what it is, then it's like, it's eternity now. This isn't something I'm waiting for. It means that what I do now matters, period. It's not that like it, it's not like, it's not like investing. Well, if I invest now, then the payoff is later. It's like, no, you, you do what you do now and tomorrow might be the reward and the day after that might be the reward and the day after that might be the reward and, and so on and so forth. And so what you do now matters because it's like, if you, if you have an eternal mindset, it's, it's not about arriving at eternity. It's realizing you live in it now. And so um, it simply matters. And it's just, you can't, it's just, you got to stop waiting. And, and that's also like, I have a very, deep belief in the agency of manhood's participation with God and what he's doing. You know, like I absolutely believe that um, he calls us to things. Like I, I arrived number of year ago, number of years ago at, uh, you know, I used to pray a lot about like, God, give me direction and make my path clear. You know, one of our, our verses for our marriage is it's uh, <laughs> I can't even tell you what the verse is. All, all that sticks is like the idea of praying for God that he would establish the work of our hands. It's a yeah. verse in Psalms. And I, I want that. But then I've arrived at the season of my life where God's like, I think you know me in a way and enough of a way of like, why wouldn't you believe that what you go and do, I'm not going to participate in. And so I feel like it's a little bit of a season of like, show me if, if like you've been walking this life for God, 27 years now, wait, no, how old am I? I'm 37. I, I guess I chose so 20, uh, 24, 24 years, technically, if, mm-hmm. if I look at baptism as my, my mm-hmm. way of entry into faith, 24 years of following this thing. And I'm still waiting around for God to show me what to do. Mm-hmm. That it just, it's like, it's kind of like, I feel like then what are we, are we just, are we just, are we just puppets, you know? And so that's where it's really like, I, I believe in the agency of humanity. I mean, because what is a Mago Day otherwise? Mm-hmm. You know, it's just like, if he made us in his image, he didn't make us, dis- he didn't make us outrageously dysfunctional. You know, there's something, you know, proportionately disruptive of about the way the world operates that I think distorts our view of God and love and reality. Mm-hmm. But I, I absolutely believe that we are capable of building a world and participating and developing a world that reflects the beauty in which he made us in and that he actually has already created. And so it just, I I just live and operate in a reality that says I am capable of participating in God's incredible creation and, and doing things out of my own human agency that actually reflect the divine. And so it's, uh, that is a daily thing that I, I constantly consider. Some days I'm more aware of it than others and confronted with it more than others. Um, but yeah, to me, that's eternity. So good, Andy. 
Brother, this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for um, your time today. And yeah, I'll be in touch, mate. Yeah, absolutely. Love it. All right. Love you, bud. All right. Take care. Yeah. Bye. Bye. I'm going to nail this. Well, hey, that's it for today, guys. I hope you enjoyed this interview. Uh, if you did, please help me promote. I know you know how to do that. Like or share or subscribe or all those kind of clever things that people are talking about. Um, but also, if you have anyone that you think would be a good interview for this uh, podcast, please do leave that in the comments down below. Let's close today with these words in Hebrews chapter 10. Paul reminds us, he says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Until that day, guys, keep doing life together. Love you. Share this around. Bless you. Peace. Mm -hmm. It's pretty good. Pretty good. <laughs>